Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hello, welcome to this week's Driven Chat Podcast. My name's John Markar. Hello, good to have you with us. And joining me is Andy J. Hello, Andy J. Hello, John Markar. We're doing a lot of name checking already. <laughs> Excellent. Which, to be fair, if you listen to our early podcasts, like in the first four or five, we sort of fail to do quite a lot. So <laughs> we just we we work on the basis that everyone knows who we are and what we sound like. Which is which, more fool us. <laughs> yeah. So we'll we'll just we'll just intro ourselves at the beginning of every sentence. Andy J, John Markar, Amy yeah. Shaw. Those are people that like to tune in for, to hear Amy Shaw. I'm afraid we're Amy Shaw light this week. You can we hear are. her on the radio show if you listen to the radio show over the weekend. And if you want to go back to listen again via the Talk Radio app or website, you will be able to hear Maximum Amy and Mike Brewer. Uh, but no, for this pod, it's just, just that. No, I'm not even going to try singing, John. I'm nearly. <laughs> Nearly launched into an awful rendition of Just the Two of Us. <laughs> However, we do have a mega special guest, and I think we need to give him a bit of a build-up because he might not have the name traction that some of our usual guests are, like last week we had Jensen Button, for example. Everyone mm. it doesn't need any explanation. This guy probably does, but the minute you realise why we got him on, I think you'll be hooked in. Do you want yeah. to do the honours, John? I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Yeah, the gentleman that we were joined by this week is a gentleman called Brian Klein. Now, um, as Andy, you've said, absolutely, you will either really know who Brian is or you might be thinking, nope, I don't have a clue. If, and I suspect you are, if you are a fan of the television series called Top Gear and The Grand Tour and various many other 
big high profile productions then chances are you've seen brian's work he is a director for top gear and a director for the grand tour so he has worked with clarkson hammond and may in the glory years so those of you that can remember as far back as the early noughties when top gear kind of reformed into the new format or the format we all know it of uh, or know it as with clarkson hammond and may he was one of the directors and carried that through i i can't remember do you remember how many episodes he did it was a huge number he he says it in the pod, John. Is in he the hundreds. He does say it in the pod. It's it, in the and hundreds. Of course, and he's not, you know, I, I worded that badly as well because I made it sound like he was. He still is a director. So with the current format, with Chris Harris, he's the director there as well. So, yes, a yes. truly incredible man with some incredible stories. And he shares some of them for the first time with us in this week's podcast, which is incredible. We really do get some exclusives. And actually, there's other things he does, like, for example, A League of Their Own, the James Corden uh, yes. Freddie Flintoff and Jamie Redknapp and Romish Ranganathan and Jack Whitehall series. I know some of those people aren't involved anymore, but you know what I mean. He hosts. Mm. He, he also directs that. He's worked extensively with other major, major players, including Jamie Oliver. And I mean, you know, the guy has worked with everyone. He's mm. been around the world with most of them. But crucially, when we talk about Top Gear, to say he's directed Top Gear almost almost makes it sound a little bit less amazing than it is. This is a guy. Yeah who sat at a table in a restaurant with Jeremy Clarkson and Andy Willman, the sort of fabled super exec of Top Gear, before the, the proper installation of Top Gear Clarkson era. And they sat and worked it out together. So he literally had a seat at the top table from day zero. I mean, he was literally there going... What should we do? And he tells us in the pod, and we'll let him tell it because he tells it better, it wasn't originally going to be called Top Gear because he had been working with Clarkson. Do you remember those Clarkson Christmas specials that you'd buy on DV well on VHS back in the day and then DVD? Well, that was his idea. That was his brainchild where Clarkson would blow things up, cars he hated. And that sort of became part of the inspiration for the Clarkson Top Gear that we all knew and watched. So he isn't just a director that calls the shots and says, oh, let's go to camera two now and this, that and the other. He's a director who has had immediate and very definitive impact on what we know to be the most popular car show in the world in terms of listeners and viewers and listeners. Who, who just listens to Top Gear? That'd be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, an incredible, incredible guest. And, uh, yeah, we'll dive in with Brian very shortly uh, I guess we should probably point out that the, the actual reason we got Brian um, was nothing to do with <laughs> directing Top Gear. He's written a book, which is not Top Gear related. It's not uh, It's not even motoring related. And we'll tell you about that book in the podcast as well. Um, but it just so happened was when we saw his CV, we thought, we kind of have to talk about the TV stuff as well, don't we? So the majority yeah. of our podcast is that. <laughs> to, to be fair to him, we speak to him for well over an hour. I think it's, what is it, about an hour and 10 minutes or something, John? Yeah. And uh, 95% of that is about Top Gear and yeah. directing mad car stunts and so on. And he's got some amazing anecdotes with the likes of Tom Cruise, etc. And then there's only about five minutes about the book. It's a great book, incidentally. I've read the whole mm. thing. It is really good, and I, I thoroughly recommend it. So that's our big guest, Brian Klein. But, John, you are looking a little, a little down. Usually you have a sunny <laughs> disposition. Usually you're a happy, fake-tanned wonder king. There's nothing fake about my town, <laughs> let me assure you. <laughs> However, today you're looking just a little low, and that's because, well, you've lost a friend, haven't you? 
I I have, and I I'd agree with you that I'm looking a little bit sad, but it might not be for the reason that you think it is. Um, it is relating to a car. Yes, that friend, by the way, is a car. Um, for the past week, I've been very kindly lent, as you might have noticed through one or two posts on on the uh, Driven Chat social media handles at Driven Chat, just in case you uh, aren't yet on board, uh, that we had loan of a Sao Paulo Yellow BMW M4 competition. So that was delivered to the office last week, and uh, today it was taken away, which is a you know that was it's always a sad day when the car gets taken away. But I'm just going to point out that John was the only one that drove it. The rest of us yes. didn't even get to sit in it. John no. was not giving the keys to anyone else. <laughs> there was no, hey guys, listen, BMW have lent us the the pod, the radio show. They've lent us the car. It was they've lent me the car, and I'm yeah. not even going to unlock it for you. <laughs> oh no, it was unlocked. It, it, I promise, I left it unlocked, especially for you, Andy. But you were just such, you're such a busy man. Such ah. a busy man. <laughs> I did, um, I did, I did want to turn. Actually, it did look fun. Yeah, it, it is fun. It is fast, but, and if if you, the listener, knows my uh, track record with BMW M cars, then uh, what I'm about to tell you might shock you. So if you've got the opportunity to sit down or make yourself a sweet tea, uh, now might be the time, because I'm sorry to say, that M4 made me a little bit sad. What? Hmm. You've not, you, I, that has taken me by surprise, John. You have not said this to me yet. What do you mean it made you sad? Was it the face? Was it what no, I keep no, talking no. about the face? No, 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 no. So the interesting thing about the M4 competition is, you know, this is a, for those that aren't aware, I'm sure most, most of you listening to this will be aware, the M4 came along in the previous iteration. So it's only been around for one previous generation. And the M4 came along as a replacement for the M3, but only the M3 that has two doors. So the M3 became a four-door model. And the M4 became a two-door model. But ultimately, the M3 and the M4 are the same thing. Just one has two doors, one has four doors. That's the slightly overly unnecessarily confusing explanation out of the way. Now, the M3 has always been a pinnacle of a car. Every other car manufacturer in the world has always invented a car and said, this is what we're putting up against the M3. It's the benchmark car. Always has been ever since the early 1990s and continues to be through to this day. So, of course, when BMW say, hey, you want to drive the new M4? no less the M4 competition, I go, hell yeah, because it's the new Fair M3 enough. slash M4. Now, I've owned a couple of M3s. I've, uh, I own, I still very happily own a Z3M coupe as well. And the, the era of M cars that I have owned, been lucky enough to own, have always been very visceral and raw and real. My old M3, for example, you had a, a button to improve the throttle responsiveness and a button to turn off the traction control and that was it other than that you turn the key and what you got was what you got that was the performance now in these new m cars you've got i dread to think the the combination of different settings you can have for engine performance and steering performance how do the brakes feel how does the steering feel what does the car sound like it's just endless 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 and i can't help but feel that all of this does take away a little bit from what a BMW M car should be, which in my opinion, my humble personal opinion, should be a bit of a race car with some comfy seats. And what the new M4 is, is a bit of a comfy car with a slightly noisy engine. Oh, no. Hmm. Oh, no. Hmm. So, so hang on. One of the things that you have said about these cars historically 
is mm. that they, and I'm paraphrasing here, John, you don't use mm. flowery language like this, you're much more black and white, but th mm. they effectively, they set your world on fire. You know, when you're behind yeah. the wheel, having a great time, it makes your heart go too fast. And that's what you love, and that's why you want to be driving them. Do, does this one not do that? It, it does, but not in the way that I would have hoped it would. The thing is, and I don't, you know, I love the BMW product generally, whether it's a 320D, which I have as a daily driver subsequently, or the new M3 or older M3s or M4s. The product is great. I'm a big fan. I like the way they look. I like the way their infotainment systems work. I think they're comfortable. I think as a out-of-the-box product, which is a phrase I use a lot, they are just great. And M cars always have been. But of course, in recent years, we have seen, due to various bureaucratic laws and government rulings and things, the, the exciting cars have had to become a little bit less exciting because of emissions and because of pedestrian safety and various other design quirks. Whereas we used to get away with having a 5-litre V10 fire-spitting engine, we now have to have a 3-litre turbocharged, less exciting version. So it's not entirely BMW's fault at all. Um, it because just they're makes playing me by the rules. Yeah, exactly. They're playing by the rules in the same way that Mercedes AMG that used to make a six and a half litre V8 now make a two litre four cylinder. What you basically want, John, is you want a track car that you're allowed to take on the road. Yeah, ab absolutely. Which is what, in my opinion, BMW M3s have always been. It's a, yeah, it's a track focused, a car that you can drive to a track day in great comfort, do some blistering laps drive that car home in great comfort, stop off, do the weekly supermarket shop, pick up granny if you need to from art class and take her home, and she's comfortable. Um, she's had a long art class, John, because you spent a long time on the track. So I mean. <laughs> she, has, she has had a long art class, but it's a great painting. You wait till you see it. Yeah. Um, I, of the car. I, the biggest letdown for me on this M4, above all, uh, is the gearbox choice. Because, again, historically, BMW M cars, they've always, you had two options of gearbox, either six-speed manual or a five-speed manual, if we're going back to the 90s, um, or a DCT or SMG gearbox. Now, just to put those into explanation, that's flappy paddles to you and me. And those gearboxes, DCT stands for dual clutch transmission. That means that as you're firing through the gears, it's a real action. It almost feels like you've been pushed from behind, like a good clunk from behind. Um, same with the old SMG boxes, the sequential manual gearboxes. Always a real event as you go through the gears. Now, in the new M4, what they've done is they've put the ZF8 Auto box in, which is a perfectly fine gearbox. It's a very, very, very good gearbox. And in fact, loads and loads and loads of manufacturers use exactly this gearbox, not just BMW, Bentley use it, Land Rover use it, Jaguar use it, loads of people, even Alfa Romeo use it. It's fine as a it's gearbox. It's too smooth for you, is it? It's just a bit too smooth. It's just a bit too sensible. It's a bit too comfortable. It's a bit too squishy and soft. And I want the raw. You want a passenger in the in the car who goes, blimey, every time you upshift. And in yeah, this I mean thing, this is this is why you have sort of uh, have a, a reasonable revolving door of girlfriends, John, because of this this driving style. <laughs> because they hate gear shift. Maybe this is the answer. Maybe a smooth maybe, shift maybe this, will enable this a long-term relationship for me. <laughs> you get this new smooth gearbox and you'll end up with kids. There you go. <laughs> I'll write an article one day that will be the new BMW M4 saved my love life. 
Yeah. I don't think it will. <laughs> no, but I mean, as just I, there is going to be a full article on this coming out very soon. So keep an eye on the Driven Chat feeds to to see where that ends up. Um, but ultimately, I I just felt like having driven a lot of BMW products recently, including the M440i, which is the non-M, although it says M, it's not an M. Um, that is a car that is absolutely brilliant. And it also has the ZF8 gearbox. It also has a three liter twin turbo engine and other various things. Um, but it's 50,000 pounds less. And I just think because this is a bit too squishy and soft and calm, I, I just don't, I don't really understand why you'd spend because it's not a cheap car. The uh, the new M4, I've written it down here. The one I was driving was ninety two thousand five hundred pounds. That's an awful lot of money. It's a that's lot. an it's awful a lot of money. It's I mean, cash. it sounds primarily John like they've got the wrong badge on it. You're not saying the car is bad. You're not saying that it isn't sort of you know mm. everything you expect from a typical BMW. You're just yeah. saying it's not what you expect from that BMW. It's yeah the M the the the, the M gods of yesteryear, I feel like, are looking down going, oh, oh. But, as I say, I understand it. I get, I know why it's happened. I kind of feel, as controversial as this may be, maybe the M4s and the M3s, maybe it's time they came to an end because the fest has Ooh. been done, isn't it? It's been done. How do we... The new M3, I'm told, is going to be a four-cylinder. Li- uh, four like, okay. come on. Come that, on. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't tally with everything you've just been saying. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> it's going to be a four-cylinder. It's probably going to be a two-litre engine with six turbos. Oh, I mean, come on. Yeah. So it's, it's left me feeling a bit numb, which is a shame because I was really excited about it. I really, really was excited. And, and I, you know, I, it sounds like I've been moaning. The car is blisteringly fast and, and it's incredibly comfortable. And it does drive beautifully. But the big but is that I just can't really see how you could justify if you were driving this solely as a road car why you would spend ninety two thousand pounds when you could go and spend what have i written down i've written it down here somewhere uh m440 yeah it's 40 grand less imagine that saving 40 grand for what is ultimately a very similar car uh, yeah very similar if not better and the key thing of course john is that you were about to buy it and then of course you you had a big change <laughs> of heart you had no, I think I you mean, had I... <laughs> you had ninety three grand tucked away for this purchase because <laughs> you would have rightly changed the colour from the colour that likes to kill flies to you know a more, a more sedate thing. But no, no, your brown new motor is not going to be purchased. No, not at ninety two thousand pounds. I wish I did have ninety two thousand pounds to spend on a car, but no, no, I don't think I would be rushing out to buy one, which is a real shame because I, you know, M cars previously have always left me feeling like. Oh, how do I? How, what do I sell to get one? And I, a good test of any press car loan for me is how hard it is to give the keys back. And there have only been a handful of cars in the past where I've been like, "My oh God, I don't want to give these keys back." And the M4, I thought was going to be another one of those, and it just, it just wasn't. I was quite happy. To Turned see out that, that when you saw the bloke there to collect it, you just opened the window, grabbed a tennis racket, and knocked the keys out <laughs> to him. Through the keys. Cheers. <laughs> Exits over there, pal. Thanks very much. Sorry about the petrol level. Cheers. <laughs> Bye. What I would say as a saving, as a potential saving grace is I would love to have a go with it properly, like proper, proper driving, because it was only road driving, so I can't do anything too exciting. Um, interesting choice of tyres as well. They put on Michelin Cup 2s, which are basically a track day tyre, which is fine if you're on track days, but on the road, that's just a bit of a bizarre choice because you need to get them up to temperature before they start working properly. 
Um, and the other thing is I'd love to try, with, with, try one with a manual gearbox. And unfortunately, here in the UK, we can't. We don't have that option. I guess it's down to, again, bureaucratic laws and emissions and things. In the yeah. US, you can buy an M4 competition with a six-speed manual. So I think maybe I just need to fly over to the US, have a go uh, with a manual one on a track day, and uh, I might change my mind entirely. Oh, I mean, it's, it doesn't take much, does it? That's fine. <laughs> so yeah, that's that, that's my uh, that's my my first my initial travel plans uh, in in the works. Just a, a quick flight to the US, the loan of a BMW M4 competition with a manual six speed box and a track and access to a track next yeah. week live from Nashville. Okay, <laughs> fine. Well, that'd be great. <laughs> yes, please. Yes, please. It would be it would would be pretty cool. It would be pretty cool. Okay, fair enough. I mean. Yeah, that's a shame. I'm sad yeah. for you because that would have been really cool. But there we are. Nay mind, hey, you've had a try. You've you've yeah. given it your fair assessment, and at least yeah. we can maybe say you're not such a fanboy right now. You know, it's because otherwise, I was just a bit worried that you were always just going to be like, yeah, it's great because it's an M. But no, it's still a great car. It is. It's just it. What it's done is it's made me realise just how great the old ones are. Really, really, how special they are. So, um, yeah, if there's anyone out there that's thinking, oh, maybe I need to get on board with one of these old M3s, please do. They're just so brilliant. They really are. I love it. Well, we've had a bit of a waffle. That was a slightly random tangent yeah. there, John. I Sorry, thought we'd I'm maybe have two minutes on what you've been driving this week and <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's let's make reference to the fact you've written an article. But no, no, <laughs> no, we'll, no. we'll go for a full-on Mark Armoan. Shall, <laughs> <laughs> shall we dive into our main guest? I mean... Anyone that stayed with us so far, thank you very much for your uh, 19 odd minutes of attention. <laughs> this this bit is 100% worth your time. This guy is. is fascinating, fascinating company. It's Brian Klein. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. Welcome back to Driven Chat. I'm Andy J. sat alongside my... I was going to say my best mate for a second oh, there, John. I've been promoted. Like, Hang on a sec. What's going on here? My, <laughs> my, my main man, Mr. John Markar. And John, we are in the presence of someone that I think, when I, I'm going to use these words lightly, a treasure chest. Ooh. A treasure chest of conversation awaits us for two different reasons. Firstly, for his first career. And secondly, for his sideline career, which I think is pretty awesome. It's Brian Klein. Brian, welcome to the show. Now, that's a slightly weird intro. Let me just unpack that a little bit for the audience. Brian, for a very long time, for about 2,000 years, you have been the lead director for Top Gear and many other terrific TV shows, which means, let's be fair, you've got the inside scoop on Clarks and Hammond and May. <laughs> I, made, I may have a little scoop on them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can, we'll see how it goes, but yeah, I, I, we can certainly chat about them. And on top of this primary career, you've now just written this book that sat in front of me called The Counterfeit Candidate, and we're also going to talk about that. This was something that happened in lockdown. We're going to park the book for a moment. We'll come back to that later. But we've dangled those magic words, and for our car-based audience, Top Gear is pretty much, well, the buck stops there, mm. doesn't it? <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that. So, Brian, talk to us about it. First, Firstly, the most basic of questions. You are the director. You were the director. I what? still am. I do the Freddie. You still are. You do Freddie one as well, now, yeah. don't you? Yeah. And Chris Harris and, and Paddy. Yeah. What does that mean? What is a TV director? Um, TV director can mean a lot of different things depending on what the show is. Um, I think what might be helpful is to chat about how I came to know Clarkson and then got into Top Gear and what directing Clarkson and Top Gear means. Is I like that, that helpful? Yes, mm. it is. Does it involve Rosé? 
a lot, a particular, <laughs> a particular brand. Do you know the brand? No. I'm not going to say the brand, <laughs> but it is a particular French brand. But um, so if we go back to 2002, Top Gear wasn't on air. And I don't know if most people remember this. Jeremy had left about mm. two years earlier. They tried a couple of other presenters. It completely bombed and it was pulled. So Top Gear was no more, which is quite relevant to the story. Um, and the old Top Gear was VTs cut together with voiceover, you know, and it was quite straight. It would be, what's the cubic space of the boot? Yeah. What's the miles per hour? And Jeremy was always a bit anarchic, even back then, but he was within a strict format of this is a, f a program that he was lucky to be a presenter on. He wasn't the Jeremy Clarkson we got to know. Anyway, he left... And the program then failed and came off. And that's mm. not apocryphal. That's actually what happened. I had been working with him since 1996 because I ran a production company making DVDs or videos at Christmas. And I first rang his agent, who was his wife, Francie, who's still a great friend, and said, I've got an idea for a Christmas video. Why doesn't Jeremy, I want to call it Jeremy Clarkson Unleashed, and he can do everything that he doesn't do on TV on this video. He can Brilliant. blow up cars he doesn't like. He can do whatever <laughs> he likes. We didn't do caravans, interestingly. <laughs> but I was about to ask Brian, are you the man that blew no, up the first caravan? I didn't blow up the first <laughs> caravan, but I was the man who came up with the idea with him of let's take the top three worst cars in the world and find devious ways to destroy them, which oh, wow. we did. Ending with a medieval trebuchet <laughs> throwing a Nissan Sunny across a field, which was used by a mad farmer for dead cows to feed. Oh, oh, oh my God. goodness. No, I'm serious. He was completely mad. Wow. And no cows were alive, trust me. <laughs> but we threw this Nissan Sunny. I had to take so many cameras there because I didn't know where it was going to land. And you only got one shot at it. So normally you'd <laughs> have to. You can't do that twice, can you? I had about eight cameras and literally. We had spotters with the cameraman because if you imagine you're looking through the lens and it's coming towards of course, you, yeah. you don't know if it's going to hit you and you've <laughs> got to follow it. It's like a tennis ball or a golf ball at Wimbledon. <laughs> so anyway, I'd been doing these videos with him, which became huge Christmas stocking fillers. Mm. We did 18 years together in the end and traveled I, the world. I remember these Christmas. Yeah, I mean, I do. honestly, I people them. got them as presents. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably and still have them somewhere. So I directed every one of those and we made films around the world. We did helicopter gunships with Corvettes in the middle of the desert in um, Phoenix. We did all these incredible things. And then in 2002, he rang me up and he said, come and have lunch with me and Andy Willman. So Andy Willman, a lot of your listeners will know. Yeah, fab fabled exec. Fabled exec. Genius, another genius and a very old friend now of mine. And um, they said, come to lunch. And Jeremy loves this restaurant in Notting Hill. It's just above a pub, an Italian restaurant. Went there for lunch, and he said, now you've got to remember, Top Gear's not on. Mm. He said, we've got this idea for a new show called Carmageddon. And he said, we've worked out a format and want to talk to you about it. And I said, go on. And he said, well, we're going to have a big audience. So straight away, I said, well, do you mean a car show? Mm. There's no, it doesn't make sense. I know it does now, but trust me, it didn't then. It just didn't make sense. So then he went, um, we're going to have a star in a reasonably priced car, which again didn't mean anything. Mm. We're going to have a cool wall where we look at if cars are cool or not cool. And we're going to have a racing driver who's in black leather and a black helmet, and he'll be mm. in a cage with dry ice, and we'll throw him raw meat. 
<laughs> and he said he's going to be called the Gimp, which nobody <laughs> knows this. Mm. Um, and I said, well, and he said he'll never speak. And I said, why? And he said, have you ever interviewed a racing driver? You just don't <laughs> want to hear them speak. <laughs> but he will do the same lap time in a car consistently, uh -huh. yeah. which I can't do. I might be quite a good driver, but I will not do the same lap time every time I go round. Yeah. And so he had this format. And he said, to begin with, I want you to come up with something. Can we make it look different to every other show on television? That you channel hop and you see shiny floor entertainment shows. And none of us can really remember where the hangar idea came from. I was certainly involved in that meeting. I think it came from the fact that we wanted our own track. And therefore, if you're going to have your own track with all the hammerhead and all the corners, yeah. you've got hangers there. Mm. So it was sort of organic a little bit. But nevertheless, we did three pilots that have never been shown. And I've one of them was the worst thing I've ever, ever <laughs> seen. And they would agree, Andy and Jeremy, we made it look like the Colosseum at Rome. So the audience, instead of being on the ground like they are in right, Tokyo, yes. were all looking in oh, to like this. Oh, gladiators. Like gladiators. Yeah. And we had the cage. I've actually got somewhere a shot of the stig with a cage being thrown on meat. <laughs> well, he wasn't. He was, you know, he was still the gimp. So anyway... BBC said to Jeremy, we will commission one series if you call it Top Gear. And he didn't want to call it Top Gear. Oh, is that right? Because it wasn't anything to do with Top Gear. You, you look at old Top Gear, yeah. he created a format like Carmageddon, which was called mm. Carmageddon. But it was, that's the, that was a trade-off. Mm -hmm. So we do Top Gear, um, and we are a week away from show one. And the lawyers email down and go you can't call the racing driver the gimp yeah mm. of course they do because it's the bbc well it's <laughs> not actually they had a good reason they said quentin tarantino in pulp fiction has a character in black called the gimp black leather yeah. right. and he's quite litigious bring out the gimp bring out the gimp yeah so we've suddenly got no name for the racing driver and i can remember this moment because you don't forget moments like this especially you know, they're so pivotal. He said, I've got a name for the racing driver. We're going to call him the Stig. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's the worst. I mean, I'm really good, aren't I? I, get everything <laughs> I said, that is such a crap idea. Can yeah. I say that? Or oh, such a bad idea. I'll say it. That was such a terrible idea. And um, I'm going to ask you both a question now and your listeners. And I'm, if you get it, I'll be so impressed because I think this is the best pub quiz question ever. Ooh. Who is the Stig named after? Why is the Stig the Stig? Well, I always assumed it was Stig of the Dump. Wrong. Mm. Andy? <sighs> I can hear people around the country, and I don't think one person will be shouting out the right answer, but have wow. a go, Andy. Well, this, the, the trouble is that I, as soon as I think of the Stig, I think of Ben Collins and mm. I think of Phil Keane. Because they're the two people I know were yeah, the Stig. It was Perry, wasn't it, at first? Perry McCarthy. Yeah, Perry Ma exactly, yeah. Perry McCarthy. So I'm guessing it was nothing to do with the people that inherited the suit. Nothing. So why is it called the Stig? You'll never get there. No, I will never get there. Go on. <laughs> I, I, will, I will just keep guessing and I'll be using airtime and no one wants to hear my guesses. What? Basically, Jeremy and Andy went to the same public school called Repton College, okay? Right. And the prefects there are called Stigs. Ah. Oh. And nobody would know that, except anybody who went to Repton College. So I remember him saying to me, it's a great Easter egg because anybody who's been to Repton 
will know that I'm an old boy. Yeah. Well, no, but no one else will. And he said, I'm never going to tell any. I mean, he won't mind me saying it now because <laughs> he's not even doing the show. But so that was how the Stig was born. Right. And do you know what? In I think in 2008, when we won an Emmy and it was 350 million people, biggest show in the world, um, the Stig was one of the most Googled words in the world. <laughs> wow. Yes, okay. um, so, so that's sort of how it all started. And the show started on BBC Two and James May and Richard Hammond, you know, hadn't really done... Well, James May, you know, had done very little TV. And um, do you know that Richard wasn't... The, that James wasn't the first presenter. You know about yes. Jason Dor. Absolutely, Jason. Yeah, came in so for a, a, was it S season. Yeah. yeah. So Jason was the fourth Beatle. Mm. Yeah. To be frank. Yeah. A second-hand car salesman who'd never done TV was given the opportunity, and it didn't work out. Um, but you know, so James then came in. Mm. So Richard did come in right from the, the start, but he was unknown. He did a show on Men and Motors. That's right. But yeah. it was very small, mm. and this was a huge break for Richard. Um, James had previously been doing something called Driven. That's right. With he Mike had. Brewer. Oh, did he? I On didn't even four. know that. Yeah. But I mean, I was at, saw the auditions and all the rest of mm -hmm. it, the audition tapes. And we didn't know the show was going to ever become what it became. But then there were certain things. I think it was series one when we were having these production meetings to come up with ideas like you do and we all do. Yeah. And one of the APs or producers said... Why don't we do the fastest faith? We'll get a <laughs> rabbi, a vicar, <laughs> an Anglican priest, and they'll all be so competitive, although yeah. they're these wonderful people. Yeah. They'll all run each other off the road <laughs> and all the rest of it. <laughs> and honestly, I remember shooting this thing and they were all there in their, you know, dressed in their apparel. <laughs> and it was amazing because it was a game changer. It was quite politically incorrect. Mm. And we called it the fastest faith. And so Straight away, you could start to see a bit of anarchy and political incorrectness coming in. <laughs> um, and the show just grew and grew. And I remember at one point, it reached the point where I couldn't travel the world either for work, for filming, or socially with my family. If somebody found out what I did for a living, I was directing Top Gear. Of course, yeah. Honestly, India, Russia, but it was so big that I remembered at one point thinking to myself, I must now start to enjoy the moment. Because mm. in life, you don't. Yes. And I actually thought, I my email was brian.klein at bbc.co.uk because that's how BBC emails work. Yep. So it's very easy to work out. Yeah. I was getting fan mail as a director. Really? How wow. And people wow. from all over the world going, oh, I love that. What did you do there? How did you do that? Why did you do that? Completely different. You know, I, I was an entertainment director doing comedy. Mm. lots of comedy shows and I still do big Netflix specials with Jimmy Carr and Jack Whitehall and things like yeah. that but so although I've always loved cars and have always Top Gear allowed me to I mean my wife and daughter I mean I, I was turning over cars every three months and you know I was seeing you know like in the fashion world when you see a car sorry in the fashion world when they they bring out the, their outfit six months ahead you know they're designing mm. them so we were filming cars that hadn't come out yet. Of course, yeah. 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 And I remember when the DB9 came out, mm. I was like, my God. And Jeremy did this killer film with the DB9, a race across Europe. 
And Aston Martin, the next day, got about £50 million worth of orders. Wow. From football, it went from a one-month waiting list of three years overnight. Huh. But the show hadn't then gone around the world yet, so they knew they were going to get all these orders. And I was fortunate, not from Top Gear, but because I had my own production company, I was doing quite well. And I was able to afford to buy a DB9. Mm-hmm. And the one thing Aston Martin said was, we can't give you anything off because, and the BBC, you can't, and you don't. Of course, yeah. But what we can do is bump you up the list a bit. Nice. Because it's nice. You can then do a little review in a magazine yeah. as a director of Top Gear. And I got, you know, a DB9. And, and <laughs> you know, so my list of cars mirrored, you know, working on Top Gear was amazing. But going back to the whole thing, so the show became huge. Um, and I realised you would be in the edit and you had three days to turn it round because we'd film on a Wednesday. That's right. That always blew my mind. Even even as a youngster watching it in the early noughties, thinking, hang on, you filmed this Wednesday night, Wednesday and, night and it's going out on a Sunday. And there's so much in there. Can I tell you my Tom Cruise anecdote? Please? Yes, please. <laughs> it's it's a double, double whammy. Uh-huh. So we've got Tom Cruise. This is 2010. And Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz are over to promote a film called Night and Day, That's which right. was a terrible film. Not a, gr- <laughs> not a great film. <laughs> not a great film. No. But it's Tom Cruise. <laughs> it and was rubbish. It yeah. was rubbish. Um, and his people contacted us. Can you imagine? BBC Two car show, mm. Tom Cruise, and they're going, he wants to come on and do Star in a Reasonably Priced Car, and so does she. And first of all, you think it's a wind-up. Of course. Even though by then... We were getting huge names. It's still Tom Cruise it's approaching. Tom Cruise, you, yeah, you know, and Cameron Diaz, yeah. pinnacle of yeah. Hollywood. Isn't um, it? Yeah. So anyway, they turn up and they get there really early because he's so excited. Uh. <laughs> Whatever their call time was, he's there like two hours before. And um, I'm talking to him, and he's going, oh, "I watch it with Matt Damon." He said, "There's a load of group of us who watch it in LA, huh. and we get it sent out, or we watch it however they watch it on satellite." And he said. They're so jealous I'm going to be going on. You know, Hugh Jackman, <laughs> all these huge names. So only the British weather could ha- allow this to happen. It was pouring with rain when he went out to do his lap. Um, biblical weather, mm. a bit like we've had here recently. And he knew, and we all know, anybody who knows anything about cars knows that you're going to go slower in the wet. Yeah. Yeah. You could be Lewis Hamilton, but you're going to go slower. Yeah. So although he, you could see he was an incredible driver... He's going to be four or five seconds off the top of the board. I can't remember who was top. but I mean, you could check it, but I can't remember who was top. So he was so gutted because we never tell them the time until that moment when they lean forward. Yeah, but he was no fool. And he's going. And I'm saying, look, we have a little W that Jeremy puts on. You could, you'll probably be the fastest when it's time, but I don't know. Mm. Anyway, we then had lunch and the sun came out and then Cameron Diaz is on and the track is drying out. <laughs> And he's watching Cameron Diaz belting around the track. And I knew what was going to happen. So he said, can I have another go in the dry? <laughs> and his PR guy said, no, Tom, we've got Prince Charles at the premiere and we've got to leave. You've got to go in now and do your interview in the hangar. Mm. Then we've got to leave. We've got a helicopter for the premiere. He said, no, I want to go again. Yeah. So <laughs> what a dude. Yeah, what a dude. So then the PR guy went, well, how long is it going to take? And I said, well, the trouble is, we can't use the footage from this morning because it's all in the wet. Of course. So we can't say, well, you did it in the wet, here it is, but then you did it in the dry and here's your time. Mm. 
it takes a good hour to film. Oh, I would have thought more. Well, what yeah. we do, it's not a big circuit, really. It's like a big eight, and you have four cameras, and you move them round. Gotcha. And it, it takes as long as it takes, but we were a pretty well-oiled machine. Mm. Excuse me, but then you've got all the mini cams inside that have to be edited, you know, yeah, yeah. for their pieces to camera. But about an hour, and we had an edit suite there, and they went, it's impossible, Tom. You cannot. Then you've got to wait to do the interview. Yeah. Mm. He didn't care. <laughs> and I mean, he just said to the PR guy, so we're going to be late. So anyway, we go into the, he does it. And we go into the hangout and start the interview with him and Cameron. And you know the way, which I can take credit for, everybody was around them and the look of the whole thing. Yeah. And everyone go look at the back of shot and some beautiful people and all of that, you know, choreography. Mm. A girl right in his eye line behind him and Jeremy fainted. Now, she didn't faint because of Tom Cruise. We used to have people faint every week. Yeah. Because it was so hot in there. Right. And you'd probably get two fainters show. And they'd be come round within two seconds, and a St. John's guy would take them out from some fresh air. It was totally par for the course, but he wouldn't know that. Mm. So this girl fainted, and he just caught it in the corner of his eye, and he jumps off live during the filming and goes over to her, and he's saying, and she's coming around, and he's going... And he's still mic'd up, and he's going, are you okay? And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, I'll come and see you afterwards. Anyway, we then carried on the interview. Suddenly, all these girls started fainting. No. <laughs> no, I'm serious. No. It was like, what? I know maybe one or two people <laughs> normally faint. But anyway, the end of the story is he did go top of the board. Yeah. Genuinely. Good lad. And she came second. It was incredible. That's right, yes, that's right. He went top of the board, and that night, I live in North London, so driving back from Dunsfold, which is in Guildford, where the yeah. show's done. It's a good two, two and a quarter hour drive. So I normally get home on a Wednesday night about 10 o'clock, mm -hmm. and I would have a DVD in those days, rather than a file like it is now, of all the camera angles, time-coded. And I would stay up till five in the morning doing edit notes. I would then email the editor who'd come in at six in the morning and he'd work all day. That's when Oof. you were saying, how could you do it? Mm. And then Andy Wilman and I, I would then do it. Then Andy would come in and we'd bounce off each other. And then Andy had the ultimate say. But I was trusted to sort of put it together. So that night, I'm about five to ten. And I, I said to my wife, I'm going to have a glass of wine before I go down to the office to start editing. And up came the local news. You know, you sort of get the London news five to ten or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And I swear this is true. They're going, oh, Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz met Prince Charles tonight at a premiere. And you see the shots of them outside with the fans. And the voiceover presenter went, Tom Cruise was an hour and a half late. He's never late. And I thought, I'm the only person yes. knowing. And I said to my wife, I know why he was late. <laughs> and it was just rounded off an incredible, magical day. So my life, I was thinking, I'm living this life. And it's not the stardust thing of... Because you know, mm. in this business, you know, you work hard and you work long hours and it's not glamour. No. And, and the relationships you build with these people are all about the personality of them trusting you. Yeah. So you do go for a beer afterwards and, and you will have something to eat or you will have an argument or a discussion about content. So I wasn't thinking, oh my God, what a day I've had, you know, met Tom Cruise. It was more like... I just knew that so many millions of people on Monday morning, it was a water cooler moment. That's right. Did you see Top Gear? Yeah. And I was so privileged, and I mean this, and I'm not being over humble. 
I actually took it all in and thought, my God, I'm making decisions in the edit. If I cut that out, no one will ever see that moment. Mm. Or if I put it in with Andy's agreement. So it was like an incredible time to be doing a show. And I did think I'll never, ever work on a TV show as big as this again. Yeah. And I, at one point, I don't know if you know this, it went to the Guinness Book of Records. And one year, the most watched show in the world ahead of Friends and yes. Game of Thrones. Oh, that's right. I well, I was going to yeah. say, it would be yeah. impossible for you to work on a TV show like that again because there's been nothing like that. Yeah, I mean, and the industry itself is diluted, There won't it? be because you've now got so many, you know, and yeah. also when Richard had the crash... Mm. So I wasn't at the filming of Richard Had the Crash, but I was literally in London having dinner and I got a call and I ran out of this restaurant and jumped on a train and I was up in the hospital. I got there as Mindy, who I knew really well, his mm. wife, was arriving and Andy was arriving and Jeremy and James were not, they were out of the country or something, they didn't come to the next day, you know, and getting there and seeing Richard with all these things on him and the surgeons, not the surgeons, sorry, and the the consultant saying to Mindy his chances are not good it was about wow. number two and then they looked at the oxygen in his blood and I remember this conversation and they said he must be the fittest man in this hospital and she said well he runs 10 miles a day every day and they couldn't believe his oxygen levels they were so amazing and they, they said that will probably save his life Wow! so you have that side of the coin where you know it was such a dramatic thing and then when we brought the show back, it was off air for a year. Yes. That episode when he came on with the dancing girls and onto mm. the thing, and I think it was like 10 million people on BBC Two watching it. Mm. And, you know, you go, wow, this is incredible. The, the feel-good moment. And do you remember Michael Schumacher taking his helmet off and I pretending do. to be the 2009, stick? Yes. 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 Well, imagine directing that moment, and I said to the cameraman... They were all chanting off, 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 just like the Masked Singer. So that was yeah. happening. <laughs> it was. It wasn't take it off, but it was off. It yeah. was like being at a beheading. <laughs> and it wasn't orchestrated. No. It wasn't like you all say. It wasn't like the Masked Singer. Yeah. And um, I said to this cameraman, Rob McDonald, who did so many shows, good friend. I said, do a slow zoom in. Start Because the framing was sort of on a mid shot. But obviously the helmet was about to come in. I said, don't rush it, just zoom in. And I remember saying live to him, this is going to be one of the most watched shots. Mm. And I think if you go on YouTube, it's had like 100 million views. Yeah, it is. So when you're doing moments like that, you go, wow, you have to be able to sort of appreciate it a bit mm. rather than just, oh, it's a job. And I do so many other jobs that I love but don't have those quiet moments. Yeah when you know you're creating something, yeah. or not creating, you're not the creator, you're capturing something. And and the thing with Clarkson, and it's very similar, do you watch League of Their Own? Have you ever seen yes. it? Yes, yeah. So yeah. I do the road trips. I don't yeah. do the studio, but I do the films when we go around the world. And they're the, the most fun. They're mm. the most fun. And I also do the sort of VT challenges on the studio show. So I've done, in the last two weeks, I've done a couple of big ones. Um, and we're about to do another one. When you're with people like Flintoff or Redknapp or Whitehall, Clarks and Hammond May, you don't direct them in the sense of you're going to say that, you're going to say that, or you're going to be there. You, and they don't want scripts, but they want scenarios mm. because they're such big personalities. So you put them into, go, right, so they, what we're trying to get out of this moment is this. 
how you sort of get there. And then I've got to capture it, but keep them relaxed and feeling that whether I say action or not is irrelevant because our banter, that's yeah. what they like. That we keep that vibe going. And with Jeremy's the same where, you know, you're not suddenly the sort of director who goes, right, everybody quiet, mm. action. You know, it's sort of like you're talking, laughing, joking. You go, okay, everyone, here we go. And you're sort of into it. And, yeah, nice. And it's that sort of working with them and realising that what you're there to do is to capture what they do. Mm. Not, And Jeremy, of course, is unique because he writes it all. Of course. So that was quite intimidating for a lot of directors and a lot... And for me, because his scripts are amazing. Mm -hmm. I wish I could show you one, but they would be, if it was a review of a car, it would be like a 10-page script, opening piece to camera, then interior, then it would say epic shots, music, mm -hmm. voiceover. You know, you sort of, you know, this is a man who understands what the vision is, yeah. not a presenter who's been given words to say. So I would often be with a DOP on a film great DOP called Ben Joyner. Who've Just for our listeners that don't know, that's director of photography. Yeah, director of photography. And Ben's done some of the epic Top Gear films. If hit the People who know Top Gear will have seen his name. Yeah. And Grand Tour. But, in fact, he does virtually exclusively Grand Tour now. But I remember one morning we were somewhere, I can't remember where it was, with this amazing Bentley. And Jeremy's script sort of said, he had quite a lot to say, which wasn't really about the car. Mm until the last line when he said, and, da -da -da, this and, and then he would get inside. So Ben and I spent about an hour choreographing this walk through the grounds where there is no car mm. because it was words mm. and that we could time the walk and I got a runner to stand in and so that by the time we go, da -da -da, and this car and then Ben could whisk round and we'd see the car. And I was really pleased with it. I thought it's going to look great. And then I went and we had some breakfast. He said, right, we started with Bentley. I said, yeah. And uh, I said, I've got quite a nice move with Ben. And he loves Ben. And he went, no, no, I just want to be standing by it. I said, no, no, it'll be, trust me, it'll be. And he went, no, I'll need to be standing by it. And you go, what can you do? It's yeah. <laughs> Clarkson. He's, he's Clarkson. <laughs> yeah. But he's not being contrite. Mm. And equally, occasionally, I could have said something. There's lots of equivalent anecdotes like that. And he'd go with it. But he wasn't doing it. He just didn't want to. He wanted to be by the car. Because although the words to me weren't about the car, he felt he needed to be in a shot. And he said, I want to be in a wide shot with the car, not a close-up, so you can't see the car. So he could tell the director sometimes basically how to direct it. Yeah. But he'd written it, and he'd earned the right yeah. to he do it. So I don't know if I've answered that. I think the question was, what's involved in directing? I think I just said to you, what, is, what does the director do? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't shut up for a half an no, hour. No, it's great. It's great. I mean, Brian, there's obviously there's, there's so much we can dig into and there's so much we can discuss and I'd love to know, you know, the, 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 the men behind the characters. I've been privileged to have had, well, two separate almost hour-long conversations with Jeremy now. I've spoken to Richard and James for, for an hour each. And I've got to know them as they're really nice guys. You know, they they're, they're different to how they seem on camera because actually those are personas. Those are caricatures in a way. And I imagine they weren't originally. When you first started Top Gear, they were just themselves and then they've become sort of yeah, extreme I mean, versions of themselves. If that I think sense. it's interesting how the hamster and Captain Slow <laughs> were totally organic moments where... You'd, nobody ever once said, you need a nickname. That's right, yeah. 
And that's where TV shows go wrong, where they say, we're going to give you a character. You're the slow one. Mm. You're the this one. Yeah. And the viewers are not stupid. Mm. And I don't know. I'm Probably there will be somebody out there who will tell me, because I don't know the first time, you know, James was called Captain Slow mm. or the first time, you know, Richard became a hamster. <laughs> but it happened. And that's, you know, that's sort of the joy. My memories are more of the late. I mean, I did... 198 episodes or whatever I did at Top Gear. It's like the early ones are harder to remember, some of the earlier films and earlier moments, because I think, I just, I don't know why, but the the middle and later ones are tend well, Probably to be because so much time has passed and probably well, because... It's 2002. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, and also the significance of the show changed. So it's, it's inevitable that when you're mindful, as you've asserted, when you're aware of how many people are watching, when you mm. know you're making the biggest show in the world, you are, your brain is naturally going to be capturing those memories. I'm not suggesting that previous to that it was just a job mm. because mm. you're clearly very passionate about everything mm. you do. But mm. nonetheless, it rings true that when you know something is that significant, it's always going to be etched in deeper than when there's just, you know... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Maybe two or three million people watching at best. Well, there's that. And there's also that period of time. So that kind of 2007, 8, 9, 10. For me, I feel that was where... It, that was the true sweet spot yeah. for Top Gear because at that point you've got that first few years of the, the guys working together and there were there were little glimpses. I'm trying to think of what one one of the first big epic adventures. And it North must Pole? be North Pole? no, I'd say even before then. But there, there was North Pole actually is a is a very good example because that was the first time I think as a viewer we saw James May and Jeremy Clarkson really getting to their wits end with each other in a small space. Mm. I've seen it. I have seen it so you, many times. You can't <laughs> produce that, really, can you? Because you are in an Arctic truck in the middle of nowhere. There is no other environment in the world, really, where you can say you're in the middle of nowhere because that's where they were. And you could see this. And I think that was the first time I remember going through forums and I was one of the the Top Gear geeks, you know, I'd be looking at the forums, I'd be in a forum on a Monday morning after everyone had watched it on a Sunday and saying, oh, what did you think of this? What did you think of that? And I remember the conversations being, I really think they hated each other at that moment. That wasn't acting because, of course, the common comment all the time, and this is something that Richard Porter mentioned, mentions in his book, the old script editor for Top Gear. Who's one of my good friends. Great. I'm glad. I'm really glad to hear that because I... I have great admiration for Richard and we've spoken a few times He's over a email. Talent. 
He, he is. You're absolutely right. And I remember reading in Richard's book and on that bombshell, he mentioned that one of the most frustrating things they saw as the production side was looking at comments going, oh, it's, it all seems a bit scripted. But of course it, of course it's scripted. It has to be scripted to capture such amazing content and to carry a story like that. But then we started seeing episodes where we thought, there's no script there. That's, that's not a script. That's genuine two blokes who are about to punch each other in the nose, for sure. And, and I guess that the point I was trying to get to here was I think that's probably the reason that those earlier years have disappeared into the mix because you were getting into the glory years. You were probably watching what was happening both through the lens or through the editing screen or at the point of seeing the final production and thinking, we've made something bloody good here. Yeah, I mean, do you know, the, did Jeremy, when you interviewed him, did he mention about the Emmy, his reaction to the Emmy? No, he didn't. No, sorry, it was me that interviewed him, mm. not John. Oh, right. Um, no, although we've we've had a pretty deep chat on a couple of occasions now about well, various different things. He well, here's the interesting the thing, and it's exactly picking up on your point. I think it's 2006. It won, the programme won an Emmy for best... Um, Best unscripted foreign program. That's right. And he was so furious <laughs> that he wouldn't go over and, and receive it. He said, how can they be so stupid? Yeah. I mean, how can this all be unscripted? Mm. I mean, yes, of course there was ad-libbing, but at the heart of it is a script. Yeah. And he couldn't believe that he was winning an award for best unscripted. <laughs> so, but let me tell you something. Richard, you've, have you interviewed Richard on this? We've had him on before, but not on this. We had no, him on the, on, old, on the old radio yeah. show. Because yeah. Richard will tell you, so every Tuesday night, the entire production team, all the crew, everyone, there'd be a script read-through mm -hmm. in the office. And I used to really look forward to it because um, everyone would sit down. We all had our positions. So Jeremy, Richard and James would sit next to each other because they're obviously performing yeah. the words, as it were, but in a sort of three chairs together. And because of just what the way it was, Andy and I always had the same chairs. Right. Just because it's like, I don't know, we just always sat in the same chair. So over all those years, new producers came, new runners came, new researchers. But, you know, and Richard was the same. Richard also, because Richard was there from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And my PA, Liz, who was another hero, did every show, Liz Campbell, who was married to Gavin Campbell, who some people may remember from... That, uh, that's life a million years ago. <laughs> but anyway, and Jeremy, they would perform the script that Jeremy and Richard had written, mainly Jeremy. And if there, were enough, there weren't enough laughs, it didn't matter what time of night it was. And we're, he'd go, right, I'm going back into the office. I'll be out in an hour. And we'd do another Jeremy script. is this, yeah. they would say yeah. that. Right. He was driven. Mm. He was driven by it had to be as good as it could be. Yeah. And if he thought you were fake laughing or just trying to get through it to make them feel good, he could see through you. Brilliant. Um, so it was extraordinary. And he is, yeah, I mean, you know, and listen, I'm not saying he's a saint, mm. but he is a genius. And I've worked with, I'd say, completely different. I did about 10 years with Jamie Oliver when he first started. Okay. And Jamie and I are still good mates. And it's like, there's another case of someone who wanted to do the best he could at what he did and then success, fame, money, if you like, comes with it. Yeah. But was never chasing those three things for their own entities. And Jeremy, again, driven man, he didn't need at that point to be rewriting the script. Mm. The show was so big, people would go along 
with whatever it was. Yeah. Mm. But if he felt it wasn't good enough mm. or a car review he'd done, he'd look at an edit and go, no, get me that car back. I should have said that. I'm going to do an extra piece. Right. You know, most people in our business would never, you move on from the moment. No, that work ethic is what you, is what really sets you apart. You know, one of the things that Clarkson always says, and he said it to me repeatedly, is he's the luckiest man alive. And I've often countered that by saying, by just reminding him of the talent and hearing the way you speak. It's not just talent and luck. It's dedication and determination and drive, as you called it. It's all those qualities. And ultimately, um, he's a very bright man. Mm. He's so, you know, if he wasn't writing about cars, I mean, you only have to read his Sunday Times column. That's right. You know, which can be about anything. Mm. I'll tell you the other thing where he's a genius, I believe, and was when he started reviewing cars, the way he uses analogies. Mm. Nobody can do that like him. No. Whether he's comparing it to a beautiful girl or to a tiger or to a comedic type analogy. I used to look at those and go, and sometimes he'd come out on the top of his head, but most times I'd be sent a script and I'd be laughing out loud at some of the mm. things I knew he was going to say. And they were so clever and actually so good. You know, you were, they actually made sense. Yeah. And that is a real skill. Oh, it is. You know, writing comedy is it, one of the most impressive things. And I, I've said this before, both on our podcast and um, we did an interview with Philippa Sage, who I'm sure you've yeah. met a fair few times as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, Clarkson is one of the only writers that I've come across. And this, yeah, this, is, this is me personally speaking here, where I've physically had to stop reading because of the tears in my eyes from laughter. He captures the, the way he captures a vision in his written words, which it's, it's such an impressive thing to do as a writer. And I have all of the books at home from all of the columns he's written because it doesn't matter if you're reading about an adventure he's been on some far-flung corner of the world or the review of the new Volvo V70. It's brilliant. Every single word is brilliant. And you can see that through the episodes of Top Gear as well and just how his brain comes through. But I, I want to kind of dive back on something you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, which was talking about the creation of Carmageddon, or, or in fact, pre to Carmageddon, and that's the, the DVDs or the videos as they would have been at that time. Do you feel like you're perhaps responsible for some of the some of those more dramatic scenes in Top Gear funeral you know the Volkswagen Sirocco advert where a, a, an explosion went off in the background if you were there to come up with the ideas of throwing cars across fields and blowing things up did that I, do you I, think that's you that carried I, that through to Top Gear I think I enabled Jeremy to have those ideas cool so the in 96 when we did that first one and as, you know, we talked about destroying cars mm. in evil ways. And then we started to blow things up and we had a tank blow up a Yugo <laughs> and all the rest of it. The truth is, I still think, and it is hard to remember, I'm going back now, 96, I'm going back 25 years. Yeah. Being at those early meetings with him when we were, because to him, making those videos was no different to making a TV show. Mm. The production values the cameraman, the editing, the grading, the budgets. In fact, the budgets at some point were even bigger than TV before Top Gear became really huge. So he cared about them just as much. It wasn't, oh, I'm doing this as a little bit of business, you know, to come out at Christmas. He would be just as sort of anal about the script and mm. about the voiceover. But so I was, I can say that I was doing that stuff with him before it was done on Top Gear. Great. But I can't say... 
I did have the title, so I said, and it is what the title is if you Google it. It's Jeremy Clarkson Unleashed on Cars. Everything, and the strap line is everything he can't do on TV. <laughs> so I realized that there'd be a market for that. I never dreamt it would become, I think we sold over 12 million copies of. Wow. Um, one Christmas, we did one called Supercar Showdown. Yeah, I've definitely got that. And we went to Ascari, <laughs> which is this brilliant mm. private racetrack in Spain. Yeah. In Malaga. Have you been there? Yeah, I have, yeah. Beautiful, isn't it? Wonderful. So we were there for seven days and we had all these supercars. The, Desi the Bugatti, the Aston, whatever. And um, that sold at Christmas, I think, in four weeks, 800,000 copies. Wow. Which was more than Superman the movie. or Yeah. And you <laughs> realised, again, it was like, wow, this is incredible um, to be doing something. But quick story on that. And, I mean, I'll keep talking till you shoot me in the head. Quick, <laughs> quick anecdote. We, I think we had the Aston Martin Vantage, one of the Vantages, and we're doing a big piece on it. It's going to be a two-day piece. It's going to be about 15 minutes because he loved it. It was a love piece. And halfway through day one, we've got all these great shots, and then the gearbox went. Mm. And we're in, in Spain in the middle of nowhere. And we had our own mechanics, but it was unfixable you needed all these parts yeah and i said we're really screwed jeremy because we've shot so much of it we can't write it off but we can't finish it and they're like do we start another car and forget we ever had the aston because you haven't got to the best bit yeah and he suddenly got his mobile out and he just said i'll make a call and i can hear him on the phone i mean i'm standing here like i am to you and they're going right okay yeah but like it's got to be in the next sort of four hours anyway it was the can't remember his name but again you might know it was the german owner of aston martin the man who actually was the ceo of Wolf, wolfgang yeah it might have been yeah. i mean we have to look at what the year was it sure of course but basically you know within four hours this these mechanics arrive with all the parts they're <sighs> helicoptered in they wow. work all night that's power and the next that's power and the next day it's up and running huh. and you go it was amazing so you know that was the power of the program. Mm. They knew, by the way, that he was doing a love piece. Yes. That was going to be. So they're going to pull out they're all the stops. They're going to pull out all yeah. the stops. Yeah, you would. So, you would. yeah. Yeah. Brian, you, you, you've sort of mentioned at the start as well how, of course, you were the helmsman for Clarkson, Hammond and May, directing all those episodes. But you also still direct Flintoff and Paddy McGuinness and, and Chris Harris. Yeah. Remember, by the way, there are other directors who do other. I can't do yes, every yeah, course, of course. But yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, forgive me for asking this, but it's a much talked about, much debated, much discussed circumstance, which is, of course, the the punch, yeah, that ended Top Gear as we knew it, and was responsible therefore for the creation of the Grand Tour and so on. Yeah. Can you just share your version of that? I don't want, I'll tell you what I will share. I don't, I mean, I wasn't there when that happened. I was filming that day with Jeremy, but I wasn't there. Mm. And if I was, I'd say I was, but yeah. I'd been with him earlier in the day. But I wasn't there um, when that happened. The, the implications of what happened meant that the show got pulled and Jeremy, Jeremy was off the show. And I was asked to then work with Chris Evans. Right. Because Grand Tour didn't exist. Yeah. It wasn't, if you look at the chronology, there's quite a gap. I mean, maybe six, nine months. It wasn't like 
oh, Amazon Prime came in the next day, yeah, and that's right. Grand Tour was bought. Grand Tour was born. So, and there was an awful again. If you look at the chronology, there was a lot of talk about Richard and James perhaps staying. You know, and nobody knew what was going to happen. Right. And I was asked to straight away, even though I'm a freelance, I was asked, look, we want you to work with Chris. Mm. And I had a meeting with Chris, which I didn't really, really want to do, to be honest, because I had no intention of ever doing it. But they said at least sort of meeting. So I had a one-on-one -on -one meeting for about four hours with Chris, just on our own. I'd never met him before. Um, and I said, I don't want to be the person sitting in the corner of the room saying, oh, we always did it like that. Mm. We should do it like that. You should do it like that. You should do your own thing. And so I then rang Jeremy. And we went and had lunch in this lovely old restaurant in St. Johnswood High Street called Harry Morgan's, a very Jewish, it's a sort of Jewish salt beef bar. Mm. And I'm Jewish, by the way. So he said, you order, because I don't know. And I, you know, mm -hmm. and he was quite down at the time, you know, because of obviously. Yes. And um, I can remember what we had. We had chopped liver and we had chicken soup and we had salt beef or whatever. But <laughs> the point is, he, I mean, I'm sure he was, you know, he had regrets about what happened, but we yeah. didn't ever, I never wanted to be the one to talk to him about it. And, you know, and there, all I would say is, and this is not a mitigation, but I will say this. I knew of massive personal pressures that were happening in his life at the time. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't in any way exonerate anything that happened, mm -hmm. but nothing is ever in life quite, you know, as, as sort of linear as you hear. Sure. But he said, you know, I want to obviously try to do another show, mm -hmm. but, you know, I don't know where we'll be with that and what's going to happen. And I said, well, look, I'm cool because I've left. I'm not doing it. And the weirdest thing for me was, do you remember the show? I directed the show in the studio when Richard and James did it without... Uh, with the elephant in the, the room. elephant in the room. Yes. And I had to get the framing of the elephant yeah. backside. <laughs> and that was a genius of Andy Willman. That was the last show Andy did, and it was the last show I did. Mm. And no one wanted to do it. Yeah. Richard didn't want to do it. James didn't want to do it. I didn't want to direct it. And Andy didn't want to produce it. Mm. But the BBC had all these films, you know, half finished and half done. Yes. So, so that then happened, and then I was doing. I started doing other stuff, and then Andy and Jeremy approached me, and and, and Jeremy said, "I've got this idea uh, for a show called The Grand Tour," and he had an in, an idea of this tent that would travel the world, and the next minute I'm flying to Johannesburg for the day, literally for the day, to look at the top of a hill in a on a mountain to say, can you put a tent there? And newly, I mean, it was, that became a very bizarre. I can imagine. Three yeah. years traveling the world, doing that show, which again, how lucky am I to be mm -hmm. doing that? And also sitting at meetings with the three of them when you come up with a conversation street or whatever it was. Yeah. And no, but you know, being organically at those meetings, not, you know, they're the guys that came up with all the creative. I would do my bit. But I was on the inner circle, and I value that tremendously. Mm. I do feel very privileged yeah. to have been, you know, part of that. When, because I asked Philippa Sage about this, and Philippa writes about this in her book, uh, a very emotional account of that period. And and again, no need to focus on the event. We all know what happened mm. in the event. But what really struck me, both from 
what Philippa had written and what she'd said to us in the podcast as well is just how personally Jeremy had taken everything with regards to this is more than me losing my job. This is writers, this is script editors, this is camera operators, it's directors, it's producers, runners. Mm. What Jeremy wanted to do, according to what I've seen written, was I want to put this right. Not I want to get back on the telly and I want to make another show. I want to put this right for all the people that had done such an amazing job in producing the greatest car show in the world so they can get back to work and not in an environment where, okay, we can still work on Top Gear, but it's not the same. It's... I want to create the product that we've been so brilliant at making for the past few years. And did you, I, I mean, I assume in that restaurant with Jeremy, you probably saw that firsthand. Well, that that story about the restaurant, remember, was the Top Gear. That was the first time. That of was, course, that sorry. Was yes. No, that's okay. Yeah. But no, I mean, we had, I came in very early. Uh, Andy and Jeremy started working on it. I came in and they said, look, we want you to develop this new look and give it a new feel and we're going to travel mm. the world and all the rest of it. And we got in a load of different designers to pitch. Yeah. And Patrick Doherty came up. He was the only designer. He was so clever. And Patrick, if you look at his credit, Patrick does light entertainment shows like Strictly Come Dancing or big shows. Mm. And you, I don't know if you're familiar with radio of seeing sort of set designs or if you've worked mm. in TV. So, you know, they come in with lots of, you know... Uh, 3D drawings and colour yeah. things of how something may look and we had four I think designers pitch for Grand Tour Patrick got a painting done oh wow it was amazing <laughs> and it looks just like it looks and it was a big painting like that and I mean I don't know who he got to do it or how much he spent on it and like when Jeremy saw this painting it was like I want to meet this guy and it turned out actually they knew it they they had a relative in common and one thing and another. And Patrick got the job because he came up with this awesome concept. And I thought, God, you're a clever guy. You've Because it stood out yes. so much from a normal graphic design mm. that's being generated on a, on a Mac. Um, so, yeah, and then suddenly we're doing this show around the world. Um, and, you know, Amazon budget's huge. Yeah, of course. Allowing them to do whatever they want to do. Um, and that opening episode, you know, standing out in the middle of the desert, <laughs> watching the planes come over and the burning stuff and the band, it was all Jeremy. That was all in his head. Wow. That opening thing of him reading the newspaper, do you remember? Yeah, I do. Clarkson vividly, fired. Yeah. Of course. He had that in his head. He knew the opening shots. I didn't direct most of those. A guy called Phil Churchill did, who's a great director. But he, Jeremy visualized all those shots and knew how he wanted it to be mm. and he knew what he wanted to say and how he wanted it to come back so again i sort of yeah i mean keep saying this phrase but how lucky have i been yeah i know that to have been i would say there's richard porter there's andy and jeremy are there at the top of the pyramid and that's it yep. with richard and james and andy is very much the fourth musketeer mm -hmm. there's no question and then I would be the next with Richard. Yeah. You know, having been there from day one. Yeah. So that is an incredible place to be. Absolutely. What a place to have been. Absolutely. Bird's eye view. Bird's eye right view. Right in the thick of it. Yeah, mm. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, wow. I'm mindful that we could talk forever. <laughs> about, I could definitely get about lost in Top this. Gear, yes. and we haven't got onto League of Their Own and all that sort of stuff. And I would, I genuinely would like to, but I'm also aware of the time and the fact that we haven't mentioned the book properly. <laughs> so, which is ultimately how we were able to get you. Um, 
So I'd love it if we could book in a time to talk again, if that would be all right, about about more memories and mm. life on the road with the with the trio and beyond. Because I mean, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Romish Ranganathan, for example. So much, yeah, time. I think what a show! A absolutely brilliant talent, mm. and I'd love to know more about him. Mm. Um, but we'd be doing you a disservice by not talking about how you spent lockdown, where <laughs> when of course, for a man that has spent his entire life directing the biggest TV show on the planet all over the world to then suddenly be told you can't actually direct anything right now because that's what happened to all of us. I was making a TV show that suddenly got cancelled. We were doing radio and so on, which we could still do, but we had to do it remotely and all sorts of things. The reason you're sat in this truck is because the studio we were due to shoot a TV series in was closed. There's a screen behind there that we had to use because we had to do it on the road. You couldn't do anything. It was stopped. So you thought, well, I'll I'll get the typewriter out. (laughs) It wasn't, honestly, it wasn't quite like that. But um, if you remember, Boris called that first lockdown and it was a proper lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. So as you quite rightly said, everything stopped. I was four days away from doing a Netflix special. There was a new Top Gear thing coming up, a new League of Their Own road trip. And my diary was rammed and suddenly empty. But not only that, no emails, no phone calls, no one coming to the door. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this, but my feeling was weekdays and weekends were the same. Oh, it was like Christmas, wasn't it? You didn't Everything know what day of the week it yeah. was. No, yeah. no idea. Um, even sometimes you didn't even know what time it was. No. No. You know, it was just... Yeah, I mean, all I knew it was... doesn't matter. The five o'clock press conference was a sort of regular... Yeah, that's right, yeah. ...regular thing with Boris yeah. and or Matt Hancock. So I had had an idea for a crime political thriller for maybe 25, 30 years. I had the plot in my head Mm. and I had studied Hitler at university. I did modern history and politics at Queen Mary College and I always thought that maybe Hitler didn't kill himself in the bunker. Mm. You genuinely believe... I don't want to... Yeah. I don't want to give the plot away mm. because I think people have to read it. I'm 223 mm. pages in. It's a gripping, gripping read, and I and I'd love you to tell us the plot mm. shortly. Mm. In in the I the, can tell you what I've you'd I've like to say exactly. without yeah. without spoiling anything. Yeah. But you've just sort of hooked on something that is a conspiracy theory that has been around, well, since World War Two. Mm. But I never really took it seriously. So to hear you who has studied this in depth, is this a genuine thing? As in, there is a genuine persuasive argument that Hitler and Eva Braun did not commit suicide and did actually go on and survive? Well, I'm not sitting here saying I 100% passionately believe that. But what I can tell you is the very opening paragraph of the book, and I'm happy to say this, um, three months after the war ended, there was a big conference called the Potsdam Conference where Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin met to divide up Germany. And that's how you got East and West Berlin. Mm. And that's when, on the record, this is not apocryphal, Stalin said over dinner, we haven't found the real bodies and we think he's in South America. That was then followed up by uh, the Russian foreign minister doing a press conference and all these papers are there, all the newspapers covered it. So this is public domain, saying Stalin says... Hitler's escaped. Mm. So the conspiracy theory started three months after the war ended. By It was started by Stalin. Now, people say that he did that to sort of really sort of, uh, what's the word? He, he did that really to sort of 
confuse Roosevelt and, and put them Roosevelt and Churchill and make them think, well, if he's still alive, do we need to find him? Mm. Whereas if he was dead and he knew he was dead, he'd be one up on that. But it's a bit of a random, that's a bit of a random argument. And the other thing that I find quite compelling is that so many top Nazis from Eichmann to Mengele all did escape to South America. Mm. There was an escape route. There's no question about that. Right. Because they got there. That's right. Yeah. So therefore, why would the guy that was number one, who had Martin Borman, who was his very wily guy, who was his sort of assistant, why would he not have chosen that route? And secondly, what is beyond dispute is that between 43 and 45, when the Germans knew they were losing the war, billions of pounds worth of money were sent out to South America by the Nazis. For for what? To build or to give them safe haven under the Peron regime in, in uh, South America. So there's enough evidence to suggest that it's possible. And my I always had this idea that if he did, what would be the implications in the present day? If he had a family or a lineage, yes. what could that lead to? And that was an idea I had. But what I can tell you without, hopefully, I don't want to spoil it, and I, you'll see what I'll say now that you've almost finished it. Yeah. And um, I think this will make sense that it won't, it's not the giant spoiler, because I don't want to. I think I've tried to do something that people enjoy. It's a page turner, it's a beach read. It's, it's, it really is a page turner. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, well, you did 200 pages in one night. I so did. I did 223 <laughs> pages in one blowing night. Blowing my mind slightly. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm amazed. So going back, I had this idea for a safe deposit robbery that had to happen in my mind in January 2012 in Buenos Aires, where thieves would tunnel in like Hatton Garden, get away with a lot of money, but in one of the boxes would be paperwork, films and proof of Hitler's mm. existence. Wow that would have implications on the present day. Yeah. Now, that was always part of my idea. Um, now, this bit I'm about to tell you is beyond belief, but it's a true story. And my brother believes in symmetry, and I've got to tell you what happened briefly. I sat there on the couch thinking, God, I might as well have a go at writing this, because I always thought one day I'd find a writer. I didn't think I could write a thriller, by gotcha. the way. I yeah. didn't think one day when I stopped directing, I'll write a book. I had no ambition to write a book. Gosh. Because I didn't think I could. But looking back, all I've ever read are thrillers. Baldacci, Grisham, Ludlam yeah. were all my go-to reads. But I never thought one day I'll try and write that story. But people said, what a great story. You should get someone to write it. So I'm now on the couch. I've hurt my back, which is another story. I can't move. <laughs> um, and I'm now thinking, shall I have a go? And I thought... I'll find the name of a bank in Buenos Aires that has got a proper safety depository so that it can be authentic. I'll, I know South America quite well. I know Buenos Aires. I'll be, where Where could that bank be? What would it be called? And start to get inspired. And you can do this after we finish. I just put in the words, Buenos Aires safety deposit bank, not robbery. Mm -hmm. Up comes the biggest... Uh, safe deposit robbery of all time <laughs> in 2011 on Christmas Eve <laughs> a year before my my one needed to be wow. but I'd had the idea 15 years before the robbery happened huh. and I'm reading about the Banco Provincia which is this real bank and that they've tunnelled 100 feet 
and they've put shag pile carpet down. They've put in state-of-the-art um, aircon. And how many wheelbarrows worth of earth were moved? Wow. And I'm getting all this research for my idea, which I've had before the real event happened. <laughs> and I remember ringing my brother, Ray, and I said, what? And he said, it's meant to be. And I mean, that sounds pretty corny. Mm. But I swear to you, it's totally true. So that was like, wow. So that gave me a sort of kickstart. And then I found myself writing about 2,000 words every day. And I was consumed by it, which I'd never been... In TV, you go to bed thinking about an edit or a shoot, yeah. or how am I going to do that? And sometimes I get really nervous still. Mm-hmm. You try never to show it. But I did a shoot last year, cliff diving in Ibiza with League of Their Own Boys, where they're going to jump off cliffs. I saw it. That's a great episode. It's yeah, a with great episode. Yeah. So I directed that. And I remember I was up all night because I'm thinking, how do I shoot it? Because they're on the edge of a cliff. You can't get a camera in front of them because no, they're... Yeah. How do I shoot it? I can get it from the back, mm. but you want to see them anyway. In the end, I got boats in and cameras and mount and all the rest of it to shoot up at them because it was a very it was a bay that was really quiet. Nice. But the point of the story was, you know, I still get anxious and consumed by my directing work. The book, honestly, it took me over, and I would be waking up at four in the morning with a turn of phrase, just one turn of phrase, and I thought if I don't write it down, I'll never remember it in the morning. Fast forward three months and I'd written a 90,000 word manuscript that nobody had seen. Oh, My wife and daughter knew I was doing it. They didn't take it seriously. I didn't take it seriously. I was just having fun. Yeah. And then my wife said, look, I'm going to read it. And like you, Andy, she went upstairs at nine in the morning and I didn't see her for 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and she came back down and she said, I can't believe you've written this. It's brilliant. Mm. And But, you know, and she was genuinely shocked and I was shocked. And then I started showing it to people and, you know, it sort of went from there. But the hardest thing in the world was to get a literary agent and then get a publisher. Mm. Just because I might work in TV didn't help me at all. Gotcha. That was a nightmare. I got over 100 rejections. Really? Yeah, really. Um, and ended up with two offers, one from a New York publisher and one from a LA publisher. But nobody in England, not one publisher, not even a small one, would take a chance on it. So it was really hard. That last yard was just as hard in its own way. But so, yeah, I'm it's a book that I'm really proud of. And that's why I've never come out from I've never done interviews like this. Mm-hmm. I've been asked over the years I to bet. talk about Top yeah, Gear. I can and I've never done it because I don't I just didn't want to do it. Mm. I'm sort of happy being behind. But because I'm so proud of the book. And the feedback I'm getting from people who are really enjoying it. And uh, and you won't be surprised to know that I visualise it as a miniseries. Yes, mm-hmm. I bet. Yes, I can see that. Or a movie. Or yeah. a movie. Yeah. Well, I think it's a miniseries because just the robbery could be half an hour. Well, yes. Yeah. You know. Yes, there's a little bit of money heist in there. Yeah. You know. money, yeah. The, the thing that worries me, Brian, is because you've studied Hitler so closely, because you're aware of the characters so intimately and you draw them so completely they are 3d beings in this they're not just the sort of horror shows that we have from history the thing that worries me is the believability of it you know what i mean it's, it's i know this is a work of fiction but i'm also mindful that you present a very strong case for the fact that he could have smuggled his way out he could have survived they might not have you know their bodies weren't discovered and so on 
And what if it's real? I know. I know the story <laughs> you've created is 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 yeah. a fiction work. But do you know what I think survive? makes it feel real is that I've introduced a lot of characters who are real people. Right. Like his real driver, his yeah. real chef, his real. You know, Borman is the a real character. And so the barber. On. Yeah. And all these people, if you Google them, are mm -hmm. real. And name. I mean, this isn't giving away a spoiler. He goes to Patagonia and he he names the house after his dog Blondie. Yeah which I thought he would do because he loved that dog more than anything, you know. And then there are little Easter eggs in there, like there's a character that you will know, and like you will know having read the book, who has a dog called Mucky, uh, Alsatian. Mm -hmm. Hitler had a second dog called Mucky, but I don't say that. Right. Gosh. It's just for anybody who would think, why did that character, who's not Hitler, have a dog called Mucky? Yeah. That was another one of his favourite dogs. So I've tried to put it into reality and the whole cocaine thing with his physician Morel who he created these cocaine eye drops yes which is all true so by putting in a lot of real stuff uh, but just imagining how that would then work over the next 20 years of his life I think gives it that feeling of reality maybe yes no it's it's very very powerful I mean did you find yourself when you were when you were drawing on this character and imagining him at his 60th birthday and so on, did you find your, your sort of skin crawling a little bit? Kind of going, oh. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I really did. And there's a scene very early on when they're escaping through Germany where he they confront some Russian soldiers, if you remember. Yes. And there's a... there's a Yes, that's brutal. That's yeah. pretty brutal. So, although I don't think it's a brutal book. I don't... No, no, it's... it's But, but it's sinister. Yeah. You know, because, because it could be... You could see it being real. Um, Brian, wow, you've been terrific company. Thank you very much for joining us. Can I say thank you both for having me on? It's been a pleasure. Pleasure, pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Oh, wow, you've made it to the end. The very end and it's john markar here again reminding you that this podcast the driven chat podcast has now run its course and has come to an end to find the new format search the driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps thanks bye